0: Well good morning church. My name is Tyler. I am one of the pastors here and uh, great to be with you this morning. A special welcome to all of those who are watching, uh, joining with us, worshiping on our live stream. We are so glad to have you here. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of this. Church, can I tell you a story? Okay, so I was recently sent some coffee gear and I know that shouldn't surprise anybody here. Uh, But it was interesting when I was sent this coffee gear because I was sent a uh, tracking number, right, as much of you do when you ship uh, parcels online, you get a tracking number, and it was interesting because this tracking number just didn't seem to jive with where this parcel was coming from. It was coming from down in Arizona, and the tracking number said it was originating in Toronto. Now, I know my geography well enough to know that those are in two different countries, let alone nowhere near each other. And so I kind of discredited it, I got in touch with the uh, the company, I said, I don't think that was mine, can you just have a look? And they sent me the correct tracking number, and, uh, and eventually, a couple of days later, uh, I got my coffee, all was right again in the world except I remembered that tracking number. And and so I started like, I wonder wonder what was going on with that package. There was no personal information. This wasn't like a breach of privacy. I didn't know who it was or the address. All I had was a tracking number, no insinuation of who would be receiving this. And it was really interesting as I kind of started tracking this parcel. And over the next few weeks, uh, it went from Toronto uh, to Mississauga, to Chicago, to Denver, to Tucson. And then back to Denver, to Colorado Springs, back to Denver a third time. It really likes Denver. Telling you now, if you've been to Denver, gorgeous. And then it finally got back to Tucson again, where at some point after two weeks of traveling across much of the United States of America, somebody was happy. And it was just like this anticipation that was just killing me as I was tracking this parcel over these days. Wondering like, where is it going to go next? And whoever is this parcel's belonging owner is probably losing their mind. It was just so fun to be able to watch this thing travel across. And many of you have experienced that with the products you've ordered for Christmas. And I hope that they arrive at some point. We need to pray for the postal system. But why this story? Well, Two reasons. Because anticipation and expectation are threads woven through the Advent season. And this morning is First Advent. I love First Advent. I love this season. We decorated our home uh, this weekend. Uh, We've decorated our church. It is so nice to be in the church decorated for the Advent season. Because last year, we couldn't even gather here. Advent season is this special time for me because I was baptized 25 years ago on first Advent. And this season just brings with it so many great emotions, anticipation, and expectation. You see, because Advent is the reminder that the people of Israel expected and anticipated this coming King, a Messiah. One who would rule and reign and usher in the kingdom of God. And so what do we often find in times of anticipation and expectation? Well, I think for many of us, it's this sense of hope. It's this theme that we looked at just minutes ago as we lit the first of our Advent candles, this reflection again of why we hope. It's this hope that what the Lord had promised would finally come to pass. Church, let's pray as we begin. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our hope and in this season of Advent, as we gather here together with those in their homes watching, we hope for something great to come. Flood our hearts with this expectation and anticipation for what you would have in store for us, your church, this Advent season. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the next four weeks, we're going to dive into this Advent season. We're going to spend time in a book, perhaps for you, not as common when you think of what scriptures help set the tone for Advent. Advent. We're going to spend our time in the Old Testament book of Micah. And I'd encourage you, if you've got your Bibles with you, or if you've got your favorite Bible app, turn it on, open it up. We're going to find ourselves this morning, and in these next few weeks, looking at the book of Micah, and this morning, uh, we're going to begin in chapter 4. So for those of you watching at home as well, uh, grab your Bibles, turn on your apps, and follow along here. We're going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to 13. It's going to help give us a bit of context as we... Get into this time together. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his paths, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between peoples and will settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation or train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity and joy, their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. Though the nations around us follow their idols, we will follow the Lord our God forever and ever. In that coming day, says the Lord, I will gather together those who are lame, those who have been exiles, those who I have filled with grief, those who are weak will survive as a remnant. Those who were exiles will become a strong nation. Then I, the Lord, will rule from Jerusalem as their king forever. As for you, Jerusalem, the citadel of God's people, your royal might and power will come back to you again. The kingship will be restored to my precious Jerusalem. This this foretaste that a king is coming. But why are you now screaming in terror? Why have you no king to lead you? Have your wise people all died? Pain has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Writhe and groan like a woman in labor, you people of Jerusalem. For now, you must leave this city to live in the open country. You will soon be sent in exile to distant Babylon. But the Lord will rescue you there. He will redeem you from the grip of your enemies. Now many nations have gathered against you. Let her be desecrated, they say. Let us see the destruction of Jerusalem. But they do not know the Lord's thoughts. Or understand his plan. You see, God's got a plan. And it's beginning to take shape already here in our text. These nations don't know that he is gathering them together. To be beaten and trampled like sheaves of grain on a threshing floor. Rise up and crush the nations, O Jerusalem, says the Lord. For I will give you iron hooks and bronze hooves. So that you can trample many nations to pieces. You will present their stolen riches to the Lord. Their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Now. You may be wondering, again, what does this help us to anticipate? What does this text help us to do to prepare our hearts for this season of of hope, of of joy, of peace, of love? These four pillars of Advent that we will spend our time over the next few weeks reflecting and looking into. Well, I think as we get going this morning, it'll help us uh, to get a little bit more of a context of the time in which Micah is written. You see, Micah lived about 200 years after King David, about 700 years Before the birth of Christ. He lived around the same time as uh, more prominent uh, prophets such as uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. They all kind of overlapped a bit. Even though in our Bibles, we have kind of categorized these prophets as major prophets and, and minor prophets. And so some of these major prophets, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, precede the work of Micah. Even though at some point their lives would have been overlapping. Micah's a minor prophet, not because of his less important information or wording, but simply just the size of his book. Micah lived in the rural town of Moresheth in the southwest corner of the southern kingdom of Judah. And Micah often rebuked the the corruption of city life in Israel and in Judah. And and I get this. I grew up in Vancouver for most of my life. The first 30 years of my life, I spent time living kind of in the suburbs and spending much of my time in the city of Vancouver. And then, after 30 years, my wife and I moved to a rural small town in Alberta. Talk about culture shock. 8,000 people. I have almost that many followers on Instagram, okay? That's crazy to be in a town of that size coming from where I once was. And there's sometimes this kind of animosity. There's sometimes this like dissension. There's sometimes this we're better than you when we live in this small town because we're quaint and we're, we're idyllic and we know each other's names and we all love each other. We leave our doors open. We don't lock our cars. I still put a club on my steering wheel, I have trust issues. Pray for me. But, but it's kind of like small town living is like a Hallmark Christmas movie. And if you watch those, I'm praying for you. I get it. My wife is one of them. It's this like less corrupt, less worldly type of feeling when you're in these small towns. And, and Micah had this struggle with much that he was seeing and experiencing in some of these larger urban centers. What was going on in their midst from some of the religious leaders. You see, during Micah's time, God's people were divided into these two warring kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel to the north with its, uh, Samaria as its capital. And then the kingdom of Judah in the south with Jerusalem as its capital. In a chapter before ours in Micah 3, the prophet declares this. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power. With the spirit of the Lord, I am filled with justice and strength. To boldly declare Israel's sin Rebellion. This powerful prophetic message that Micah brings towards those who are in the religious leadership authority of this time, he kind of picks on them, and I think he has every right to do so. You see, what was happening in the religious leaders, in in those who were prophets of this time, they were beginning to become increasingly corrupt, they were becoming wealthy through theft and greed. And what was happening in many of these spiritual leaders' lives is they were beginning to treat God's people as a means to gain their own material and financial wealth. And so what was happening in Micah's time is these religious leaders were essentially offering buy a blessing, I'm going to call it. This idea that if you needed to have a bumper crop, if you were desiring for the Lord to bless you with a bumper crop, hey, that'll be five bucks. If you want your business to be favorable, you know what, we'll do that for ten If you need some spiritual healing, well, that's a bit more involved. That's going to be 20 bucks. These religious leaders were treating God's people as a means to their financial well-being. Lining their pockets at the expense of God's people. And so no wonder God isn't happy. And no wonder the prophet Micah here is railing against these spiritual leaders because this is not the way it's supposed to be. The book of Micah is ultimately a book of God's impending judgment upon Israel and especially her leaders. Judgment because of a lack of justice. Judgment because of a lack of righteousness. but not without also offering hope. Offering something to anticipate and expect on the other side of this judgment. So knowing what we know, how do we understand what's going on here in Micah chapter four? And let's begin reading again right there at first one. The first few words says in the last days. And even actually before that, Uh, If you have a chapter heading on your scriptures, it probably says something similar to the Lord's future reign. So the title, the heading of this chapter is already kind of preparing you as you're reading through Micah to understand a little bit more of the context of what is happening here and what is to come. That what is to be read in verse, in chapter 4, sorry, is going to reflect upon the Lord's future reign. That this is speaking of a time yet to come. If you want to look at other similar scriptures, uh, you can look at Hosea 3.5 or or 2 Timothy uh, 3.1. Again, scriptures that reflect this theme of in the last days and things that are to come in the future. And so Micah continues. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. And then the final sentence of verse 2, where it says, For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. What Micah is declaring will one day come to pass is the object of the people's attraction to Jerusalem will be their desire for God's word, which will stream out from this city. Their desire is going to be for what the Lord says in his word, not for material wealth, not for ego, not for image, not for any sort of sense of of wealth and, and wonder and self, but for the word of the Lord. What Micah sees is the change in the hearts of all the people when the law of the Lord will be received universally rather than simply Israel and Judah. Again, this is a scripture of hope. Not for what is, but for what will one day be. How many times have you heard your kids say, that's not fair, right? Come on, everybody. How many times have you said it? Don't put your hands up. Well, you can. We have this bent, and our kids are great at being able to help demonstrate this to us, right? There's this kind of insatiable understanding of of what is fair and what is not fair, right? Like, who gets to put the star on the Christmas tree this year? Well, you did it last year. That's not fair. I want to do it this year, right? Like, Christmas is not free from the divisiveness of fairness. This didn't happen in my house last week. Okay. No, that's just an illustration. But... I remember this time when I was driving home from the interior of BC with my buddy, and we got out there to work for a few days for his company. And, uh, and we were driving home in the Coquihalla, back before you could drive on the Coquihalla still. And, uh, and what happened was he was not happy with the speed of the guy in front of us, who was speeding. And so my buddy decided he was going to speed as well and going to get around them, because we kind of wanted to get home. We were tired. We were done. And so he was speeding. The other guy in front of us was kind of speeding as well. And as we came around the corner, weep, yeah, he pulled my buddy over. The other guy kept going, but he pulled Buddy over, and we were there, panicking. I wasn't. I wasn't going to get the ticket. He is. Uh, but it was one of those moments. He like sweat stripping from his brow. He's like panicking, and and the officer comes, you know, rolls down the window and says, "You know why you're pulled over?" And he gives the whole spiel. "Yes, I know I was speeding." Officer says, "Yeah, that was excessive. Here's your massive ticket. Have a great day." <laughs> I don't know if he said that, but we talked afterwards before he, you know, drove off in shame. And, uh, and it was that moment where we were talking. It's like, that wasn't fair. Like he was speeding too, right? That guy was speeding too. Why am I the one getting the ticket when he should be equally as guilty and he should get fined? How many of us have ever said that before? Well, like, they're guilty too. Why? Well, he was speeding. My buddy was speeding. Clear as day. He was guilty. There's this desire in us for fairness, for equality, for, for, for things to be made right again when they don't seem to be that way. And my buddy learned a hard lesson that day when he had to go and pay that fine, but he was guilty. It was fair. It was absolutely fair, even though it didn't feel Fair to him. You see, it's important for us to remember that the days of Micah are days of oppression, of unrighteousness, and injustice. The plight of the people is one where there is this deep longing for them for fairness and righteousness. And I don't think this is simply relegated to the people in Micah's time, it's as equal for us today. Like I said, if you want an idea of fairness, just give one of your kids a hundred bucks do it. I dare you. (laughs) I'm not doing that. There's this intrinsic human nature element in us to want fairness, to want equality, to want things to be right with all people. Like, we just we're wired that way. And even when we know that life isn't fair, I think we want it that way. And so the words of Micah in the following verses depict the hope that is to come. Verse 3, the Lord will mediate between peoples and settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. People are going to feast. Life is going to be good. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. And so we remember that the days of Micah are not unlike ours. God's people in this time had descended into terrible moral depths. If this is the culture and climate of the religious leaders, then you know that there were problems. Society was dissolving. Misery was ensuing. And yet, If you look at Micah, and if you spend some time, and I would encourage you this week, as we enter into Advent, go back to the beginning in verse 1, chapter 1, and read through the scriptures. Because Micah remains hopeful. Through all of this, Micah remains hopeful. And I find myself taking great comfort as I spend time in the text as well. Recognizing that in the times of my life where things are not fair, when things don't seem right, where nothing seems to add up, there is hope. And the word picture that Micah uses here in this text, they're powerful images I mean, they might not resonate as well with us city folk. And if you grew up in the city, you spent your entire life in the city, uh, you know, there's words and language and themes that maybe don't resonate. But those four years I spent in rural southern Alberta helped me to understand the scriptures so much better. This agricultural, agrarian culture that the scriptures find themselves in helps me now to understand it. Because in Micah 4, 3b, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You see, Micah speaks to a time where peace and justice and righteousness and prosperity will be the reality. A hope for the people of God to long for and await with great anticipation, great expectation of what is still to come, of a better day of peace, of justice, of hope. And that's the point. If we're honest, I don't think life life for us here in 2021 is a lot different than it was in Micah's time. Because we still reel against the injustices that are done. We still feel in our lives, and especially in these last few years, this, this sense of division of warring, of unfairness. And we see this played out in our culture. You see this played out in your families. This division, this warring, this this feeling of exile. And we yearn for hope and peace again. And we, like Micah, ought to recall what we know to be true. There is hope. That Jesus is the hope. When things are not right, when things do not make sense, we have this hope. That at some time, Jesus is going to come again and all will be set right. You see, this is what Israel was longing for. This time when peace and rescue and deliverance would be ushered in. And we know that Jesus the Messiah did exactly that. That he is from the royal line of David. He is the prince of peace as we sung this morning. He is our deliverer. Jesus is the hope that we cling to rather than our own strengths, our own abilities, our own efforts. Even when life is unfair. Micah 4 brings us this famous oracle the peace of God that will be established on the last day. We turn to Luke's gospel 2.14 for a moment. We read, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. What the great heavenly host proclaimed here is peace to the shepherds on the hillsides of Bethlehem. This Christmas gospel is a gospel of peace. Both the peace that Christians will find in Christ now and the messianic peace that awaits us all. In the book of Revelation, the last book in our Bibles, we read this uh, beginning in, uh, in chapter 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. much like Micah, looked ahead to what one day would be a time unlike anything they currently found themselves in or anything we currently find ourselves in. A prophetic vision of the Lord's rule and reign would be accompanied by what? It would be accompanied by a great hope. Again, it says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. When we hear those words, what rings in our heads? What, what comes to mind? This, this concept, this word, this idea of what? Of Emmanuel. Not you. Emmanuel, God with us right? That God is with. That he will be with his people then, but he is with us now. That he is with us still. That we gather in this season of Advent to prepare with expectation and anticipation of what we will remember on the 25th of December. But look at verse 4 one more time. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That will no longer be reality. And yet we find ourselves in the midst of all of that right now. Of pain, of loss, of mourning, of exile, of of division, of warring, of, of all of these things that these years have brought upon us, the reality of our sin, and yet the longing for something better and someone better. I'd love to invite Reese and the worship team to, to come back up here as we begin to, to wrap up this morning. But we, we enter into this season of Advent Again, with these words of anticipation and expectation. We enter into the season of Advent with hope. And I don't think it's a mistake or a coincidence or any sort of other thing that we begin this season with a focus on hope. Church, we need hope. We need hope in these days. Hope that in a year where we have experienced great injustice, hope in a year where we've experienced great pain, hope in a year where we have seen divisions rise up within our own families, hope that things will be better, different for the soul, firm and secure. The writer to the Hebrews understood where this hope comes from. Where do we find our hope, church? In these weeks to come, I want to ask you, where will you find your hope? Do we put our hope and our confidence and our trust in Black Friday and the acquisition of goods simply to make ourselves feel good, to make ourselves look good compared to our neighbors and our friends or what we post on social? No. Where do we find our hope? Because the hope we have, the, the stability we have, the security we have needs to be found in Jesus. And so we declare on this first Advent Sunday these words of one of my most favoritest Christmas carols. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Church, I hope that those be the words that we echo, that we will sing in a moment, that we would say, come, thou long-expected Jesus. And Jesus, we do pray that this morning that you would come, that you would make all things new, that you would end the warring and the division and the factions and the injustices that we see all around us, and that you would be our anchor in the storm. That in you, Jesus, we would have this firm foundation, this rock upon which we can stand, that we take hope and confidence that you are with us, God. And so we sing, we declare this morning, come thou long-expected Jesus.